When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you want to listen to this episode or any of our episodes ad-free, you can do that now. Head on over to Patreon. Click on the ad-free level. You get all of our bonus shows that you've been hearing so much about. Plus, every single day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, you can listen to this episode or any of our other episodes at the same time, ad-free, over on Patreon. everyone this is david welcome back behind the velvet rope let's just get right into it today because we are joined by the one the only mr daniel franzisi hi it's franzisi franzisi okay well i mean i was close right yeah pretty close uh rupaul helped me tell people how to say it it's um i don't have my own air conditioner i have to use my franzisi that is really helpful. But you know what? I think most people, like, even when they do interviews with you, say it wrong. Um, yeah, you know, people get it. It's 50-50. It's, it's because I was going to say it the correct way. And then I Googled and I listened to all these interviews with you. And I said, oh, and I have a big capital Z. So, see, sometimes you do research and it actually doesn't pay off. That's it. That's the truth. Well, welcome. What is going on? How is your summer going? Where are you in the world today? I'm in LA today. It is hot. Um, it is summery. Uh, and it's going. Are you like a summer person? Do you like the summer? I am a water, I mean, I'm a water person. So like if I am in the beach and I am in the pool and I am in a water park and I am in a river, a lake, it doesn't matter. I just need to be like in a body of water. Really? I am like the happiest you'll ever see me. It could be like 300 degrees, but um you know, spending time in the house or doing things like running errands or whatever in the heat. It's just not my bag, baby. It's not really my bag either. Well, I know one thing you're doing this summer and you are coming back east because Italian mom is coming to the stage. Yeah, I'm very excited about it. This is the first fully realized play um, about Italian mom. Uh, just like uh, getting her on her feet so people can see her live and I'm very excited about it. I think it's um, funny and poignant and meaningful and uh, culturally significant for my people. I, I'm really excited about the whole entire thing and I can't wait for people to see it. Like, I think, so, you know, I am a fan of your YouTube, but for everyone who's listening who doesn't know 
of Italian mom. Tell us about Italian mom and like, how did she come about? It's hilarious. Well, first of all, I have an Italian mom. Her name's Denise. <laughs> she goes by Noni Didi online and she's quite the character. Her and I had a um, WOW Presents World of Wonder show together. Um, Daniel Franzese and his Italian mom. But also I play her in a series of sketches called Shit Italian Mom Say. And then um, she had a little IGTV television show called Antoinette Nell's Life that was 26 episodes that aired over the last year. Um, and now also I use I, I'm, my stand up is like at least 40 percent me making fun of my mom. Um, and so uh, now we're going to see a, fi a finally fullized love letter uh, realization um, of this character. I just people keep begging me to do new things with this character that I believe me. I, I mean, I have to shave. I have to do a lot of things to be Italian mom that I don't want to do. But everyone keeps asking for it. And I mean, as an entertainer, like, I mean, that's all you can really ask for is that people are responding to what you're putting out there. So my heart is full. And so are my ideas. And uh, Jacques Lamar, who is a playwright, who's written several plays about Italian women, but also several incredible comedy shows for, inc for drag queens like Varla Jean Merman. And he approached me and said, I love your character. I want to figure out a way that we could work together to develop a stage show. So it's probably something that I might not have jumped on by myself, but Jacques brilliant and basically took we came up with a concept for the play, but then uh, went through all of my material, which is hours and hours and hours of material of Italian mom from TikToks to Instagram to YouTube and compiled it all together and took facts about people in that world and helped me flesh out um, a play. And it's it's so great. Are you shocked? Because like you say, like as a performer, you know, like you create a lot of characters, some stick and don't stick. Like, are you shocked at like the response of like that people like me and just everyone like who doesn't like Italian mom? Yeah, you know, I miss my grandma and I miss a lot of those ladies. And I know that a lot of um, people who have approached me have missed them. They were like a, a, a stitch in time. It was like the immigrants who came through Ellis Island to the kids that were completely Americanized and whitewashed. Like it's the in-betweens, those like ladies that had their own little dialogue and their own little way of talking and their own little way of cliches that were translated from Italian um, like just you know uh and their own italio american dialects they're brooklynese where they sort of bastardized italian it's just this like special northeastern kind of lady that everybody from that area knows like you don't have to be italian to enjoy this play if you are jewish puerto rican chinese if you came from that area and you knew one of these types of people you will love this show and i think um italian people are a lot like southern people in that regard because if you're not southern you've been invited to a Southern person's house and you've been treated like family and you've been overfed and loved. And if you stay long enough, you become a cousin. And it's kind of like the same thing with Italian families. Uh, if you've met an Italian mom and loved an Italian mom, she's made you feel like you were part of her life for good. So this is a love letter back to those ladies. Do you think that's why, like, you look at, like, Jersey Shore, Real Housewives in New Jersey, even Jerseylicious, like... I mean, these shows are so popular, like people can't get enough. Sometimes. Mob Wives too. I do feel That's like true. there is a lot of um, emphasis on the brash and boldness of the Italian-American culture. I mean, the trashiness and the wildness um, that, 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 that is displayed in all of those different things you were talking about. But I think that um, 
it's few and far between that we get to see the real heart of the mom. And I think that that's what Italian moms are really famous for. They're hardworking, loving, loving, loving ladies. And I think um, that's really more what I'm trying to show with this character is sort of like um, the softness that comes through that, that abrasive personality. That makes a lot of sense. Do you think, like, how do you think, like, the Italians are represented on, like, Jersey Shore, Jersey Housewives? I mean, there's really not much Italian representation out there that isn't um, uh, exploited or isn't mafia-related. It just doesn't really exist. I guess because Italian people are, are passable as white, that, like, a lot of times... It's not something that um, people can spot just by looking at somebody unless they are, you know, um, completely immersed in the pop culture of it all. But I think that um, uh, there's a certain level of me that feels a panic of losing uh, cultural significance of people, of these ladies, you know, um, aging out and people not getting to know these types of people, you know. Um, And I think... uh, there's a certain preservation that I'm doing here. I think um, of this time, you know, a hundred years from now, I don't know if these ladies will be around like this. So it's kind of interesting um, to record as much of it as I can now and put it out there. That makes a lot of sense. What about what does your own mom think of Italian mom? I assume she understands this lovely tribute or does she have pointers for you at night? She thinks it's the greatest thing that ever lived. She thinks it's the best thing since garlic bread. She gets recognized from my impression of her. Really? So she was on the beach in Fort Lauderdale and yelling to my sister. And she's like, Diana, hand me the towel and whatever. And um, someone's like, excuse me, I don't mean to interrupt. But have you ever seen shit Italian mom say? She was like, that's my son. She had to show her ID to prove that because it just reminded her of my character. Wow. That's like the biggest compliment to you possible. Yeah. To me, out of anything I've ever done uh, in in the entertainment industry, this is my favorite because I feel like um, it's like a prank on my mom. Like I could like, I don't watch Mean Girls. I don't watch like my movies that much. Sometimes I have to, I enjoy them. I think they're good things, but it's like a different experience. Um, Like watching this, I could, I never tire of it because whenever it comes on, I'll watch the full thing or, Uh, Someone tags me and I'll watch it because it's like I pranked my mom and I got her. And to me, it's so funny. Um, I feel like I'm fortunate enough to still have my mom with me. Um, A lot of people don't. And I remember even I was on tour doing stand up last year and like a a makeup thing or something or cologne thing opened up in my bag and went everywhere. And as I was cleaning it, I was talking out loud. It was like three in the morning and I was a little stoned, (laughs) but I was talking out loud and I was like, I was like, I, that's why I told you to put it in a Ziploc. If you would put it separate in here, now go get that thing, clean this part. And I could hear my mom guiding me through everything. And I was saying it out loud. It was so weird because I was like, you know, even years from now, I could see when we're not as fortunate enough to still have my mom around, that my brother and sister might call me and say, can you talk like Ma and tell me what she would say about this? Because, and I think I could. I could like stay in that character for so long. So wow. I shot the entire... Uh, Antoinette Nails Life series, which is 26 three-minute episodes, all with every, with costume changes for every episode in six hours. And it was all improvised. 
Wow. So to me, I'm excited to see what it's going to be like to sit in that character for an hour, on an hour and a half on stage and, and develop like an arc and really build up, you know, emotion and, and, and give it sort of like, I guess the full treatment that I give my other characters when I'm acting. Italian mom has always been like this side little funny gig thing, but now in a play, I'm going to be able to dedicate the same attention that I do to my other characters to this character. And I'm curious to see where that's going to lead. Discover why critics are calling kingdom of the planet of the apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day. It's a jaw dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Oh my God, I have to tell you guys, The Envelope is back with more podcast episodes from the LA Times. And listen, I'm so excited. Now you can hear Emmy-nominated actors and directors ahead of the big night. And you guys know I love the Grammys. I love, listen, I love it all. I love the Oscars. I love every award show, which is one of the reasons why I love listening to The Envelope. But nothing is better for me than the Emmys. TV is everything. September 12th is the big night for the Emmys. And now you can head to The Envelope and you can listen to these actors and directors ahead of the big night. So listen, some of their upcoming guests include Bill Hader, Melanie Linsky, and Coleman Domingo from Euphoria. These guys at The Envelope that are doing these interviews, they're from the LA Times. So, you know, if you think I know what I'm doing, these guys are professionals. You can download and listen to The Envelope from the LA Times wherever you get your podcasts. Catch up now because, hey, September 12th and the Emmys are just only a few weeks away. That's right. The Envelope is back with more podcast episodes from the LA Times. You know, everyone always asks me, like, how I deal with the internet trolls, like all the listeners who have something to say about the housewives and leave negative comments all day on Instagram. Listen, I have to tell you, I'm really serious when I say that the comments don't bother me at all. And the only reason why is because I've worked on my mental health. I mean, mental and physical health, there's really nothing more important. Because when you work on yourself and you have that clear mind Nothing can bother you. You're comfortable. You're happy inside. And the long-term effects of therapy and working on your mental health really can help strengthen your relationships and give you a more positive outlook on life. And for my mental health, I've turned to Talkspace because, listen, first of all, it's a fraction of the cost of in-person therapy. But really, I love that I can reach out to my therapist and get my therapy and work on myself from anywhere in the world. You don't have to wait for an appointment or go into an office. And their licensed therapists are trained to handle just a variety of specialties. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $100 off your first month with Talkspace. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com. Make sure to use code VELVET to get $100 off your first month. That's VELVET and Talkspace.com. And if like Mean Girls, you say you don't always watch all, like if that's on TV and you're flipping around, do you just flip right through it and say, no, thanks? I absolutely just flip right through it. Yeah. <laughs> and not that I don't enjoy it, but I've, I, you know, I, I tour a lot. Sometimes I do like screenings where I talk through the movie or I'm asked to do Q and A's or whatever. So I, as, there's no shortage of me knowing what's going on in that film or, and I still like it. I still think the jokes are funny. Um, it doesn't bother me to have to sit through it, but it's not something I would just do in my free time. That makes sense to me too. Were you always into acting growing up and 
Brooklyn, a nice Italian boy. Was it always acting for you? Yeah, my grandfather, my great grandfather, when he moved here, um, tried to through Ellis Island, tried to get um, a house on the street in Brooklyn. And they said, we don't want a greasy Italian like you on this block. And he was like, you son of a bitch, one a day, I'm going to own the whole block. And he did. He, um, he had uh, 13 children and they all bought a house on that same street. And that is the street that I was born on. So it was like my grandfather's street. So I was like the, the, the oldest kind of of my mom's generation. So all the kids who bought houses on that block, their kids who grew up on the block. I was like the first one of the first kids. So everybody celebrated me. And, and, you know, when I learned the ABCs, I would go from aunt Nina's, to, uh, you know, to aunt Roro across the street to the Marchese's house, all the people, if you weren't, I remember my family, if you lived in the block, you became like family unless you were out. We didn't talk to you. There's a few of those too, but, <laughs> but I would go around and I learned at a really early age that I would um, entertain people if I sang a song or told a joke or knew, or knew my ABCs or something. So I, I, I got used to the fact that I could create joy from performing very, like as I was learning how to talk. So to me, I've always been an entertainer. Um, and, you know, I, in second grade, I did my first commercial. And so it was like, I started getting like a, just really addicted to all that stuff. It was too much for my parents to do professionally when I was a kid because they aren't showbiz people like that, or they weren't then anyway. And so they basically like, we'll support you. You can go to classes, you can go to camps, you can do all this stuff, but uh, you're going to pursue this when you're 18, like when you're ready to do it on your own. And so that's kind of the path I took. Wow. Well, prior to Mean Girls, you were in a lot of great movies and even after, but one in particular, what was Party Monster like? Just Macaulay Culkin, Chloe Sevigny. There were so many people that were that was an intense thing because I had done the movie Bully, which was by Larry Clark. And Larry Clark is very uh, famous in the art world, um, even more so than maybe he is in the film world where he's very successful. But he um, is a prolific photographer. And so there was that edge of cool. It wasn't just like I was in an indie movie. I was also in this art movie. So I was getting invites to things that like, you know, um, the Whitney Museum and stuff like that because of my affiliation with him. So I went from kind of being like this outsider musical theater nerd in Florida to kind of being like an indie darling and like people inviting me to all this stuff and like liking me instantly before meeting me and stuff. So it felt so different. I mean, it still was a struggle. It wasn't all easy, but when I, a lot of the people that I met when I first started going out in New York City were the club kids from the remnants of the party monster murder and all of the situation that had happened there. And so uh, people would be like, oh, I love Larry Clark. Do you know about Limelight? Let me tell you this story. Have you ever heard of? And so I kept hearing the story about Michael Elig and, and all of the stuff that had happened through friends and, and other queer art people that I was meeting. And so when they announced they were making the movie, I'm like, that's the movie about all my friends' life. Like, this is the thing that I need to be in to really kind of like let New York know I'm here, you know? And I thought, and I thought, and I, my, my agents, my managers at the time were like, there is no part for you in this movie. Like, it just doesn't exist. And they literally called the casting director, Susan Shopmaker, and they were like, um, we need to send Daniel in for this movie. We know there's no part for him, but he won't take no for an answer. Would you mind telling him no for us? 
like you know um and so Susan Schottmaker met me and she liked me and she was like, I don't, I would love to put you in this movie, but I just don't think there's anything. I'll give you the script, take it home. If you see that there's something in here that you really think that you want to be, I'll have you audition for it. And there was nothing. It was all so small, but um, I read it to my mom and she mentioned to me, like, why don't you try to be more than one part? And I was like, oh, that's like so weird. Like, I don't know how to do that. And she's like, well, the rat is in a costume. You can't see him. And then maybe you can be something else. I'm like, great idea. And then when I went in, they asked me, they said, we want you to be the MC in Dallas. How about that? And I said, well, I kind of wanted to be the rat. And they were like, the rat? That was going to be like a PA in a costume. And I was like, well, who was going to do the voiceover? And they're like, well, you know what? We didn't even think about it. I'm like, it's the most important part of the movie. He describes the whole murder. They're like, well, how would you do it? And I was like, maybe like a New York City taxi cab driver. And I did it. And they were like, you know what? You should play both parts. And I was like, yes. Like, so um, that was my first thing with World of Wonder and getting in with them and I, and I, you know, I only worked a few days on that project, but Theron Smothers, it was his first producing project. Now he's the EVP of uh, talent over at World of Wonder for Drag Race and everything else. But back then he was, he just kept me on set every day. He was like, come back again, hang out, come back again, hang out. So I got to really know the cast members and, uh, and they were all my age and it was so cool, especially Chloe Sevigny, who I, who I really looked up to because she was also discovered by Larry Clark and then had an Oscar nomination for Boys Don't Cry. So I was like, that's a trajectory I would love to be on. And, you know, um, it was just inspiring and fun. And uh, for as little as I'm in that movie, I've gotten so much mileage out of it. I got to go to Sundance for the first time and I got to meet all these different people. And I became friends with um, a lot of the actual club kids, like rather than just knowing them as acquaintance, became like good friends with like wallpaper uh, Walt Cassidy and a couple other people who then took me into their lives, which were also fabulous because all of those people were so creative and so and so connected that when that all went down, they landed in different amazing places. You know, they were either like special effects makeup artists like Sacred or or um, uh, doing the costumes uh, on Sex in the City, you know. Or like like this guy Arnie or like they were like uh, or Walt who was like a curator at like an incredible gallery in Chelsea and so I was thrust into such a cool art environment um, from being a part of that movie so it led to when I moved to LA after doing Mean Girls they were the first people I called at World of Wonder because they were who I knew and I was still closeted but they were they're, they were so queer that whenever they had an event or something and they invited me, I felt like it was like the one time I was like able to be myself. So their Christmas parties and their uh, events and stuff, every t- everything I went to, I, it was like the kind of place I wanted to be. I didn't want to be necessarily in like a meat market gay environment. It was nice to be about a, around a bunch of artists and creatives and meet people that way. So just when I was saying to myself, what am I going to watch during August? Because really, there's nothing starting until September. Oh, my God, you guys, we have an exciting announcement. Friday, August 12th on VH1, RuPaul's Secret Celebrity Drag Race is back. And this time around, nine stars are going to face off for the first time ever as show-stopping drag queens. But there's a twist. They're keeping their identities a secret from everyone. It's kind of like the mass Singer meets Drag Race. This is like the most brilliant idea ever. That's right. They're leaving their famous personas behind to transform into completely unrecognizable drag queens. Can you even imagine 
Think of like your favorite celebrity. Now imagine that celebrity in drag. They might be on this season, but to take on this challenge, of course, they're going to need a little help from all of our favorite drag legends. Jujubee, Brooklyn Heights, Monet Exchange. They're going to be helping out to get all of our secret celebs in tip-top shape to compete in the ultimate lip sync showdown. And then each week, these mystery queens will perform with everything they've got to impress all our favorite judges, Carson Cressley, who was on this very podcast here, Michelle Visage, Ross Matthews, and of course, the one, the only RuPaul. And then each week, the eliminated queen must show their face to the world in a celebrity reveal, which, oh my God, it's going to be so shocking. And in the end, one secret celeb will be crowned the winner. Who will be America's next celebrity drag race superstar? Well, you're going to have to wait and see, but not too long. Don't miss the premiere of RuPaul's Secret Celebrity Drag Race Friday, August 12th at 8 p.m. on VH1. I can't freaking wait. And hey, you know we're going to be talking about it on this podcast here. And so they opened their gallery, the World of Wonder Storefront Gallery, and they made me a resident curator. And I worked with them for years on that gallery, too. So it was just a crazy, fun, artsy experience being a part of that movie. And which led to so much, as you say. What about me? How did Mean Girls come to you? Like, how did you first get the script? Like, what was your So Susan Shotmaker, who had cast me in Party Monster, um, also cast me in like a Verizon commercial at the time. Um, she was doing the New York casting for Mean Girls and they were desperately looking for a Damien. Um, they had searched all over. They had found one person who they thought might be it. Um, but the rumor was that he, he might be too old. So he wore makeup to an audition and I know him, he's my friend, but he wore makeup to an audition. And then like, as he got nervous and sweaty, it, it was a white shirt. All his makeup came down and they were like, no, 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 no. This is not right. And so they kept looking and I got called in by Susan Shotmaker for it. I read for it. It was okay, I think. And then um, I was waiting in the lobby for a callback and Tina Fey was there. And so was Amanda Seyfried. And Amanda, she was talking about doing her callback and deciding whether to wear a maroon shirt or a tan shirt because she didn't know what color the background was going to be she was filming on. And I leaned in and I was like, I'd go with the Merlot, you know? And Tina whipped around and I was like, hello. And I was like, I just want to say, I love what you're doing for women in comedy. She was like, thank you. And we had a little kiki, it was cute. And then when I came into audition, she was like, you, I thought you worked here. I had no idea that you were auditioning. Now I'm excited, let's go. And so that was a great way to enter. And, you know, according to the E! True Hollywood story, my audition wasn't that great, but they really liked me. So I didn't get the part yet. And a month or so went by and I kind of like forgot about it as you do. And then they called on a Sunday and they're like, Monday morning, we want to fly him to LA. He's going to have dinner with Lauren Michaels, Tina Fey and the whole cast. Um, And then the next day he's going to go on the Paramount lot and he's going to do the table read. They're like, but he doesn't have the part yet. So I was like, ah, you know, so I flew out to Los Angeles, stayed at this really nice hotel, got picked up in a limousine with Rachel McAdams and Amanda Seyfried, got thrown, you know, driven through the gates of Paramount, sat down at a table where some of the uh, other, like Coach Carr, who was like a Toronto local hire, was Kevin Nealon in the table read. It was like other SNL people. I was like flipping out. I didn't know who was in the cast, who wasn't. You know, Tim Meadows was there. I was like, who are these people? Like, you know what I mean? It was just like so exciting. And um, I knew I still didn't have the part yet because somebody there thought that I was too old. So I, um, I just 
acted as young as possible. I shaved as close as I could. I sat upright. I smiled at everyone in the room and I just nailed all my lines. And, um, you know, then a week later, they called me to tell me that I got the part. Wow. So were you like, okay, this is it. You know what I mean? Like, was there the buzz around the movie? I mean, of course it's Tita Fey, but was there that buzz of like, this could be huge? Oh, when I first got bullied, I was like, this is it, you know? And then I got Party Monster and I was like, this is it. And then I got Mean Girls and I was like, this is it. And, you know, I keep this as hitting it. (laughs) But but Mean Girls, um, I definitely, it was my first studio film. It was a real paycheck. It was, I paid off my student loans at that movie and bought my first laptop. It was like, kind of like, wow, like things that I didn't think were really in reach at that time. And, you know, I had done this movie Stateside that was coming out and was starring Rachel Lee Cook. And so I was staying at her house when I was auditioning. Um, and I felt like, oh my God, I'm staying at Rachel Lee Cook's house. I'm like, you know, Rachel's now been my friend for like 20 something years, but at the time it was still a new friendship. And I was like, how the hell am I at the girl from She's All That's house? Well, I'm waiting to be in this movie with the SNL people. And like, I was just like, my mind's going to blow. Like, I can't believe it. Uh, but, um, you know, it was ex- an exciting whirlwind. Was the other Damien anyone that we know? The one whose makeup was coming off? Is that like some famous actor that now we all know? He's notable. I wouldn't, honestly, there was another guy who was playing Aaron Samuels, who everyone would know as well. And I was so fighting for my role. And he was wearing a beard and he like had like a Starbucks and a hat really low. And the casting director came over twice, Marcy Lurup, and she was like, you should take your hat off and sit up straight. And he was like, I'm good, I'm good. And like, he ended up getting fired because I was so on fire that I think, and fighting for my role while he was just kind of casually chilling, you know? Um, That's the more interesting recast, I would say. But like, uh, I would never name either of them because... (laughs) It will just be everywhere in all the newspapers and nobody needs that kind of thing, you know? They'll tell it themselves if they want to. Save it for their own books. Right, totally. Like, especially <laughs> if the, the fire person is someone we know, yes, that will probably be everywhere because we know how that works. Well, you know, you weren't, you didn't come out to like 10 years after. So when you were, you know, fighting for this role, was it like, I have to get this or was part of you like, I'm nervous, like, you know, I'm not gay, I'm playing, you know, he's... Damien's very flamboyant. Yes. All, all of it. But there was no part of me that didn't want the movie. Like, I, I was like, it's a gay character. I was like, but I saw how progressive Damien was, how, how progressive the character was written. Like, he wasn't, you know, pushed in a locker or his head wasn't dumped in the toilet. Nobody called him, you know, um, any kind of slurs. You know, he was, they did say he was too good a function, but they were saying something bad about everyone. And actually the fact that he was in the burn book was actually inclusion. He's the only guy in the burn book. So it was kind of like, I felt like, you know, it did seem so progressive. So no part of me was like, should I, it was more like, wow, this is so well done. And if I don't do it, somebody else could mess this up. So I know how to do this. So I was like, so this is my job. You know, I wanted it more than anything. And were you also, because, right, because, like, it could be, you know, we're in a different place in Hollywood then, like, I might be stereotyped for this role, but was it also, like, wait, someone might out me, they might figure this out, that that was looming as well? Maybe a little bit, but I feel more so, like, it's funny because, like, I was um, out, but not really out. Like, I used to tell people I was straight unless I wanted to date them, and I used to work as a bouncer at all the gay clubs instead of going to them. 
And I just sort of like, I found my way to sort of navigate it. Like in New York, you're so free to be you that if you tell someone you're something else, they just believe you. So it wasn't like, if you're in New York and you're like, I'm a ballerina, it's not like LA. Like in New York, if you're a ballerina, you're a freaking ballerina because you can't stay in New York unless you are what you are. Or within two, three years, New York will just spit you out on the side of the road in Jersey. So it's like, you have to like literally like be the thing you say you are. So people took, took me for my word, you know? Um, and I worked as bouncer and I did everything else, but I, um, so I didn't think I was going to have like a lot of people like wrap me out or whatever, you know, but I was, it's not that I was ashamed of being gay. I loved being gay. I would hold a guy's hand in the street and things like that. Like I just wanted to work. I, I wasn't embarrassed of who I was. I had already dealt with all of that through conversion therapy and everything. So I was very fine with being gay. I loved being gay. I just felt like, why can't I, I can't be gay at this job, right. you know? And it was just like, and, and I had bigger fish to fry. I was worried about buying my mom a house and getting myself in order and doing all these things, you know? Um, but, uh, but I, I, I was like, if somebody asks if I'm gay, I'm just going to say no. And, and then it came to this thing where like, I would test it out. And someone would be like, are you gay? And they'd be like, no. And they're like, oh my God, you're so talented. I can't believe you did it so well. You play that so well. Like, and I'd be like, thank you. Or if they'd be like, are you gay? And they'd be like, yeah. They'd be like, I knew it. Only I knew it. A straight guy couldn't do that. And it was like, not like, oh, your comedic timing was great. It almost seemed like I was more impressive as an actor for playing Damien. And I felt like Damien wasn't really who I was. That's what maybe who I was maybe younger. But I was like, I am playing somebody and people are just taking for granted that just because I'm gay, that I'm able to do this, you know, and it felt like it was diminishing what I was capable of. And so after Mean Girls, um, I didn't want too much to do with it. Like I was trying to stay away from it. I I didn't do articles about it and I didn't talk about it at all. And um, I probably missed out on a lot of opportunity, you know, and anything that came through that was gay for a while, I would turn down because I started getting blacklisted a little bit. It was like um, I was meeting a gay glass ceiling because people were like, oh, he's so talented, but this isn't a flamboyant gay character. So let's not even waste his time. And I wouldn't even get the audition for things that normally I'd be getting, I'd be booking, you know? So it kind of like, it it, it made things frustrating. It made me choose roles that I probably wouldn't have choose. Like I spit in a grave where I play like, a Louisiana backwoods rapist. Like that's probably something that I might not have wanted on my resume really, but it was so encouraging to try something that like, God, like what could I do that's so different than Damien to show people that I have range or the ability to do something. And even as hard as that role was, I turned it down three times and they kept pursuing me. And like, I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to do it. Like there was choices I made that maybe I wouldn't have made if I didn't, um, you know, uh, feel like I had to prove something all the time. Did you turn anything down that's now like, oh my God, that's such a huge role, you know, like. Yeah, I've definitely turned down more money than I made. <laughs> I mean, I look at some things and I don't want to point necessarily them out, but I remember reading a few things and reading scripts and being like, what? like one of them was like, I don't even know what the movie characters ended up being like, but how I read them was different maybe than they were filmed because I didn't see these movies, but <clears throat> there was a role in sleepover where I was supposed to like, like walk around in heels. And I was like, I don't want to do that. And then there was like a role in um, nanny diaries where I was supposed to wear like a feather boa and like eye mascara. And it was almost like a non-binary character, but didn't have a name for it. So they were just calling it gay and it didn't make sense. Like something about it just wasn't like, didn't make sense. Didn't click for me. And 
Um, then there was one I really regret um, was I really wanted to play Ugly Betty's boyfriend on Ugly Betty. It was like a Italian sandwich making guy. And I'm like, come on, like, this is perfect. Like, and I try, I worked on it so hard and I didn't even get like the first two lines of my audition out. And the casting director was gay and he was like, no, honey, I have something else for you. And the way he said it, calling me honey and everything, it just felt like, oh, and then he called me in for a gay part. And I'm like, I don't even want to go in on it. Just forget it. I don't even want to go in on it. And then it ended up being the role of Michael Yuri's boyfriend, which was this really amazing progressive role where the guy, I mean, it was about body positivity. And, and one of the writers on the show actually worked for the World of Wonder Gallery. So I was like, oh, that's like, it was so much like me that I was like, man, that's one that I wish I would have done. You know, David Blue did it. And he did a great job. But I, that was something where I was like, oh man, I should have went in on that. Like, there's a few of them that I missed out on, but um, most of them weren't being written back then. Right. You know, it wasn't even being written. And if it was, it wasn't written as somebody uh, who was also a guy of size. So it's like, I, I probably didn't miss out on too much, but I felt like Damien was so progressive that, and so ahead of his time, that anything that was below that, I couldn't do. If something was ahead of it, I had no problem. And I did audition for a lot of gay things that were ahead of that, that were progressive, that were forward moving. But if I felt like something was like diminishing the movement, especially around the time of Prop 8, I just couldn't do it. That makes a lot of sense because Damien was so progressive and right. I mean, the Ugly Betty, that was a great role. But yes, I, I see what you're saying. I mean, I regret that constantly. I mean, if I, you know what I mean? Like when I think about it, but the way... I, you know, it's actually kind of sad because the way I was handled by gay casting directors, like I felt like it was more the gay and the lesbian casting directors that were that were spooking me and sniffing me out and then treating me a certain kind of way. You know, um, it was frustrating. What about you mentioned conversion therapy? Talk to me for a minute about that, because I know you recently came out and you did that article and I read it like just and this is just my curiosity, like the day because, you know, I mean, I'm gay, like the day to day of conversion therapy like what is that because people's minds go you don't meet someone every day who's been through conversion therapy well mine was like a twi- like a it was two or three times a week therapy and it was confusing i guess is the word that i would use like i i just wanted like a diagnosis i didn't feel like i belonged in the gay lexicon you know i was like i'm gay and that's why i've always felt like i didn't belong in this world now I'm going to walk into a gay club and then everyone gives me the side eye because I'm chubby and I can't figure it out. I'm like, why don't the gay people like me? I'm supposed to be having tons of sex. I'm supposed to be like enjoying my life and living free right now, maybe finding a boyfriend. And none of these people want that. And it's like, I didn't understand gay culture and I didn't understand like why I wasn't belonging. And I'm like, maybe I'm not fully gay, you know? And I think that when I grew up, I was definitely bi-romantic, but homosexual. Because the women that I loved, I really loved those women. I, I gave them everything I could give them, but it would stop at the sexuality. And so to me, um, I, that's, that was confusing for me too. Because I couldn't understand how I could love this girl, but then I can't sleep with her. And I, I didn't understand how complicated and fluid sexuality and gender is like we're all we're learning now. You know, it, it was a time where like they had to have the, a term just so straight guys could take a shower called metrosexual like it wasn't even we weren't even into our sexualities yet and we were trying to just say it's okay to like shave your balls like you know what I mean like it just became like this thing where I was I was that it was a very weird period of time 
you know, and then there was all this homoeroticism, you know, I grew up in a time in the eighties where like Bill and Ted were like kissing each other and then going fag, you know, like, and like all this other stuff. Um, Eddie Murphy was doing full sets about how he didn't want his girlfriend to have a, a, a gay friend. Cause he might've AIDS. Like that's the kind of time that I grew up. And then the precursor after the, the, well, the, what came after that was like the dude where's my car kind of like let's make out but it's okay but it's like not weird kind of thing and I think that like it was also curious I just didn't know where I fit I just didn't know I didn't really understand where I fit in you know so conversion therapy to me was like if I go here somebody at least say you're gay you know and that's what I needed like with someone just to like diagnose me and they kept saying you're not gay you're having gay thoughts and gay feelings and I was like yes I am and they're like, but you're not gay. Don't you feel like you're not gay? And I'm like, I do feel like I'm not gay. Like, it was, it was just a mind fuck. Like, and I couldn't really um, figure it out. I mean, that's what they do. They confuse you. They alienate you from your allies and, you know, they confuse you. And so that's sort of what happened to me. And there was no, like, I mean, physical element. Because, you know, you've seen movies, like, from the old days. You have No, but, my, but it's not even from the old days. You know, um, uh, a colleague of mine, Sam, had electric shock treatment my co-host on my podcast, Yash Jesus, we have a podcast about it, about conversion therapy and about um, Christianity and, and queer people. Um, he got exercised for three hours after church every Sunday, his whole teen years. Like a lot of different things happen to different people, you know, and it's completely ungoverned and completely arch- archaic and barbaric. And there's just no real way to judge what it was. For me, it was psychotherapy. It was just like, tons of like psychobabble just like throwing at me all the time I had to take written tests and the like personality kind of quizzes that like were revealing information to the therapist that I forgot I revealed because I was taking an exhausting three-hour test and then they'd be like one question they'd be like I want to ask you about question number 27 and you'd be like huh what's that like you know and they would be like have you ever stolen anything over five hundred dollars or um, have you ever com- uh, comp- uh, contemplated suicide? Do you think penises are pretty? <laughs> it was just like every third one was like something about being gay. And I was like, this is weird. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm a smart guy. So I, even as confused as I was, I had a lot of red flags popping up all the time. You know, I was young, naive and confused, but I, I still was like something fishy here and I couldn't pinpoint it, you know, but I knew that my therapist was gay and Christian and he was going to help me find out if I was gay. But then when he told me he had a wife and kids and he used to be gay, I was like, wait a minute, you can't, what are you talking about? And I was like, oh, I realized what this is. And I just got the hell out of there. That, that was it. That was like the final it was that straw. Part. Yeah. It was like the last straw, basically. I mean, it's vulgar, but I love saying it because it, it, he had to say it this way to probably get through my head. But I, he said, what are you afraid of? And I was crying. And I was like, I don't want to go to hell. He's like, you're not going to hell. And I'm like, I'm not. He's like, no. He's like, you could be sucking a dick. And the second coming of Christ could happen. And it won't matter. If you believe in God, And then you're going to go to heaven. Like, if, you, if you're a good person, you're going to go to heaven. It doesn't matter what you do. And I'm like, it doesn't? And he was like, no. And I'm like, mm, got to go. And then I went and lost my virginity that night online. <laughs> like That... that- <laughs> Right. You're like, this isn't working. So let's try this other. Yeah. You know, and um, I don't really recommend doing it that way. I wish I would have had like a boyfriend, like now the kids get to do, you know, and like hold hands for like a week and figure out what's going on. But um, everyone's journey is everyone's journey. And I made it out of it. So that's what I'm grateful for. And now 
you know, I'm dedicating a huge part of my life so other people don't have to go through it. That's right. That's great. And your podcast is great. And yes, the kids today do get to have a boyfriend at a ridiculously early age. I did not get that either. So I feel you on that. What about what was just going back to Mean Girls for a second? What was just the best thing about that experience? I mean, it was such a, I mean, like, what was it like working like with Lindsay Lohan? I think the best thing about that experience was making Amy Poehler laugh. <laughs> like, God, I felt like I saw God when I made Amy Poehler laugh. Like, I, or like, just, um, like being treated like an actual movie star, even, I don't even know if I've ever been treated as good since. Like, just, they treated us so good on that movie. Like, you know, um, the level of just first class was just like unparalleled, even to this day in my career. It was just so nice. They picked you up, they carried your luggage for you. you it was like all this crazy, like everything was done. Like, and we we always got all these gifts all the time. They gave us like a, like, an iPod when it first came out, it was like the big thing. We all got one and like, you know, um, they took us to Roots and we had shop- were able to have a shopping spree of whatever we wanted. We got to go see Chris Rock and meet him backstage and we got to go see Coldplay and they took us to all these great things and they were just so good to us and such nice people to work for and with. Um, it was just like a really good experience, I thought. What did you do to make Amy Poehler laugh, do you remember? um just whatever just acting stupid all the time yeah uh there was like a story that I told her that the um uh one of the sound guys on Mean Girls was also a sound guy on Titanic and uh somebody spiked the clam chowder on Titanic with LSD at lunch one time and the whole entire crew started tripping and he was telling me this story and he said that you know there was so like the UPM got up at lunch and was like, okay, everybody, everyone who doesn't feel good, go to this side of the room. And everyone who feels good, go to this side of the room. And then like the room got up and like divided in two. And then slowly people from the, I, I don't feel good side started to trickle over to, or from the, I feel good side started to trickle over to the, I don't feel good side. And they just rushed everyone to the emergency room in the hospital. And they were on gurneys and wheelchairs and filling up all the rooms and the waiting rooms. There's just too many people. And there's really nothing you could do to treat LSD. So my friend's sitting there on a gurney and he turns to the side and Bill Paxton's there and he turns to him and he goes, just ride it out, man. Just ride it out. bro." <laughs> like, and so uh, I later on talked to Bill Paxton uh, and got that story confirmed to be absolutely true. But at the time I had just heard it and I was telling it to Amy making her laugh and um, it was just fun. I mean, it's just fun to be around them. That is, I mean, listen, making Amy Poehler laugh. I mean, come on. What was it like working with, Lindsay Lohan um you know for me I was 26 when I made the movie and she was 15 and I didn't really know her movies so she it wasn't like I wasn't starstruck around her or whatever anything like that so um and she you know since she was young she was still a teenager she still had to go to school so it's like we'd film a scene and then she'd leave and go to school and sometimes we would go out at night but again I'm like hanging at the club with like a bouncer and a 16 year old you know it's like it was cool but I get now like as an adult like we dig each other so much more and there's so much more friendship and fun things that we've done now but I think that like back then it was it was a cool experience we were just all kind of like wow we're on this ride together you know absolutely and that makes sense and she just got married so that's you know yeah she looks very healthy and happy and I'm very happy for her do you keep in touch with like the cast I mean girls 
I do when I can. It's difficult. You know, we're all doing different things. Um, you know, uh, Hollywood's very weird like that. You become really close with people and then you just don't talk for until you run into each other. <laughs> it's kind of like uh, a lot of Hollywood's like that. And then there's like not really like a fear of never talking to those people again even if you don't see them for four or five years you end up working on something or having a call or whatever but i think um with the exception of just a few cast members i think most of us have kept in contact that makes sense even when i first started this podcast i would have guests on it would be so great and i would follow up and dm and and then it's like that's just not how it works and then you're like you come back on you have a really authentic experience it's kind of the same thing just as a movie it's drawn out and much more high end and like it goes on. Well, you know, it's actually weird. And I think that I had to learn a lesson. And I, when I talk to colleges, I try to tell, like, especially when I do like a master class at like an acting class, like um, actors, our emotions are so right here, you know, and they tell us, oh, you guys are going to play best friends or you guys are going to play brother and sister or whatever, or you're going to be boyfriends or girlfriends. And you got to get really close, really fast. And so you go out to dinner and you, you sit up all night at the hotel and, you know, you tell your deepest, darkest secrets and you become really close, really fast. Cause that's the game. That's what you're trying to do to make the relationships translate on screen. So it's intense to spend two and a half months with somebody or, or more and get to know them every single day and become like best friends and have different kinds of relationships that are just within the movie Oh, that makeup artist annoys me. Oh my God, don't you just love Sally, the catering girl or whatever? And like, you have these experiences, these shared experiences, and then it's all over and you say goodbye. And maybe you kind of have a little bit of a stronger friendship until the premiere because you know that you have that experience coming up. So you're checking in with each other or whatever. And then at the premiere, everyone's dressed up. It gives you this graduation high school moment where you're just like, oh my God, like it's so bittersweet and you're hugging each other and you don't, look like your character anymore we were seeing each other in the same clothes for two months every day you know and then it's like you know especially like if the movie takes place in like one night like i've done movies like that where you're in the same outfit every day for two months and so then you're like oh this is your style and this is how you dress and this is what this is who you are you know and you meet them on that level and then you separate and go your same ways and then you know the golden globes you're like holy shit or whatever and you run into each other and it's like but if you're anyone, and I'm paraphrasing somebody else here who was talking, and I'm trying to remember exactly who said it, but another actor said this one time, and I was like, man, it's so true. He was like, if you're anyone worth your salt in this business, you're working on so many different projects at once that you're literally too busy to have friends. And the only friends that you're allowed to have are the people that you see at these same functions and these same house parties and this one's birthday. And so there is a social element to Hollywood where you have to constantly like stay in good with like a certain crowd or go to these things. And I've given up on that. I've really given up on that because I feel like I'm not a hot Hollywood girl, you know, like in going to these things, it really doesn't serve me in that same kind of way. And if I'm not actually having fun at some of these things, like I hang out with a lot of my, my stand-up comedy friends who have become like some of the best friends I've ever had. Like, I think that I laugh with them. I do things with them. Like, and it's a different vibe to me than, than the actors in Hollywood and how they portray themselves and how they all have to like top themselves. I mean, I, I remember when a, a famous actor died and someone who was really close to that actor was like, you should have seen how much my IMDb number went up. And I was like, 
there's just like a weird like weird people in this town and i'm like not like that i you know i've always been like too close to god and like too centered my, my mother would kick my freaking ass if i ever became a person like that i just feel too real and too i have real beat into my head by my mother with the back of a wooden spoon maybe but i just feel too real to subscribe to a lot of that stuff so friendships are difficult to maintain in this town it's a difficult thing i mean i remember thinking somebody was like a really good friend of mine. And I think when people become really successful, they go through the looking glass. And I'm the type of person like in Alice in Wonderland and then Alice in the looking glass, Alice goes in and out again. So I'm more of an Alice. I can go in and I can go out. But some people are the Mad Hatter. They freaking live there on the other side of the looking glass. And I've watched people like, you know, go in and to never see them again. And then like you end up at something like, the Emmys or the Golden Globes or something. And then everyone's there, right? That's like literally a party at the Queen of Hearts house. Like the whole cast of Alice in Wonderland's at one of those things. So when you show up to those things, MTV Movie Awards, what have you, and you see all these people, they're like, oh my God. I remember not seeing someone for five years that I considered really close that I'd been through adventures with or whatever that walked out of a bathroom as I walked into one. and was like, Daniel Franzese, what a good sighting. And then walked away. I'm like, no, hello. No, how you been? Like, and me, I'm Italian. I want to be like, baby, like, I'm like in love with these people. I think when I was young, I became like a real friend to all these people thinking like, these are real relationships I'm fostering. Your daughter's born. My mom's going to knit you a blanket kind of thing. Like, and I got really close to these people. I was thinking I was developing like these real relationships with people. And at the end of the day, it's not. Then I had to reconcile with like, am I going to be upset about that? Or like, am I going to be mad? Like, what do these people owe me? They don't have to be my best friend. And then I realized they're not, they're my colleagues. And this town's all my colleagues. My best friend is Sharon, who is my friend since I'm 17 years old and we went to college together. Like, that's my real friend. That's somebody who I'll always count on, who was always there. And if a year went by that I was too busy that I didn't pick up the phone to talk to her, shame on me. And that's what I think it's, it's hard for a lot of people coming into this town to realize. And so I'll get a show. And I'll get an Emmy nomination. And all of those sighting kind of people will all call me and invite me to their birthday parties again. And I'll go. Because they're my colleagues. They're not my friends. Totally. I totally agree with every single thing you just said. I talk about the concept of fame on this, how this all works. But sadly, a lot of people don't even get there. You know, and I'm not looking down on them. I'm just saying, like, they never figure that out. I, I agree with everything you just said. Well, some people don't walk through the looking glass, so they don't know what it's like over there. And then some people don't. It's a very real distinction. Um, and I see it happening to me. Like, when I'm currently a series regular on a television show like I've been, or I'm currently filming a movie or have a big project coming out or something, there's a different thing that I have to do. Like, when a person gets an Oscar nomination, they say that it's like death to a marriage a lot of the time because you have to wear a different outfit. You're constantly focused on what that outfit's going to be. You're campaigning for the, the award. You don't just get to like sit back and accept the award like Monique did and got a lot of flack for for a million years because she didn't feel like coming up with a different outfit and showing up to all these things that Lee Daniels wanted to show up to. I actually, even though Monique in that situation, I thought, whatever, I don't even want to comment on her situation, but I think that like, I, I understood that because I was like, I like, I've been with girls who have been friends of mine who have gotten nominations for things and have had to do that old Watusi. And I've been there and that's where I've met Harvey Weinstein. And that's where I've met these people is while they had to meet them, you know, cause I was always like the, the gay friend. And when I was young and I, I don't, 
to see what they have to go through and like what you have to do to showboat when your work should just be able to speak for itself. It's really frustrating. It's a hard life. So you can't call your friend and you won't make the birthday party and you won't be able to go to the cousin's wedding and you won't be able to, and people go, Oh, he's changed. He couldn't even come to my wedding or he couldn't even call me on my birthday, but you're too busy trying to figure out all these things that you have to figure out to, to, to get, you know, to give you this rule book. And it's not applicable anywhere in the real world, except for in the looking glass. I agree with that too. Do you notice it from like a dating point of view too? Like after Mean Girls, like you say, like when you went to the gay clubs and no one was looking at you and you're like, what's, what's going on? I would imagine, oh, Mean Girls, the hot, you know, movie of the decade, I guess. I mean, it lasts forever, but. I was in the closet during all that time. And, you know, basically for 15 years, I just had three long-term boyfriends. Like, that's how I got out of it. I was like, I'm going to get a boyfriend fall in love and then I don't have to date I don't have to go to a gay club they don't want to go to a gay club why they, why go to a gay club why you know and so I always had boyfriends who had girlfriends and then we would go with the girlfriends to the straight club yeah seemed fine to me and honestly like I feel like in Hollywood I don't even know why I'm talking about this stuff on a podcast but like honestly like in Hollywood I felt like gays are weird because you, you would meet them at a club and they'd be like, oh my God, you're Damien for Mean Girls, you're Daniel. I'd be like, yeah, they're like, oh, I'm such a fan of yours. Your role was so incredible. It just like opened up everything for me. Thank you so much. Can I have a picture? Would you mind? No, no problem. And then you take a photo with them. And literally two weeks later, you're in like Target and they're like, hey, bitch. And they're like pushing you. And you're like, what the fuck? They're like, I know her. I don't even bother. And you're like, you don't know me. Like the first interaction is always like a beautiful fan moment. And the second one's like, I know you my whole life and I could push you and touch you and grab you and exploit you and interrupt your meal or whatever. Like, so I'd rather save the first reaction as long as I can and not run into people, you know, and like, then the first reaction is a nice one. I don't need to make a million friends. Like when I worked in clubs, I knew everyone in New York City. I don't want that life anymore. Like I want to scale down who I know to the people that I want to be around that, you know, um, uh, enrich my life. That makes a lot of sense to me too. What about like a Mean Girls reboot? I mean, everyone, like including Lindsay Lohan. I would love it. I would absolutely love it. I, I would do it in any form whatsoever. This movie brings people so much joy. So I lean into it. Damien is it on a different level than a lot of the other characters in the movie? One, he's like the least problematic character over time. Like that's like, when you think about it, like, you know, the teachers in her bra, the principal's hitting on her, the, you know, the other teachers like sleeping with the students, the one girl's doing like psycho revenge planning, you know, the other one's like lying and having two sides. Like the other one's a manipulative bitch. It's like who, like Damien's just like hanging out in the bathroom. Like I have to go to choir. Like, you know what I mean? Like, so that's one thing. But I think for a lot of people in America, especially Damien was the first time that they saw a gay and you could kind of tell it was really gay, even if I didn't say it, but like a gay chubby teen just kind of being comfortable in his skin and like never worrying. Like Damien didn't cry in the movie and he wasn't sad and he wasn't like, I can't go. There was none of that stuff. It was, Damien was like, huh, what's next? What are we doing now? I can't, I do the morning announcements and I'm really busy with the choir and I'm on the homecoming committee. And I'm like, he had a whole life outside of that story where all these people's lives were like each other and trying to destroy each other. And Damien has a whole life in me girls we don't even know about where he's like, he's a part of all these committees and he's doing things and he's like comfortable. 
and he dressed nice. He he probably would have been a plastic if he was a girl, like because he got he loved the hierarchy of it all, but he was above it. I feel like it's such a great character. But for so many young gay kids, especially chubby kids or POC kids or anyone who just felt like other or different or wasn't sitting at the cool white table, I feel like for them, Damien was something that was like, wow, like that's kind of like me. Like I'm that one. Like, and he's the best, they're the best out of everything. The art free table is where I'd rather sit. You know, I'd rather, you know, like it just made more sense. Like, and I had a lot of grown men start crying to me. It took like six years. It took a while for the movie to be old, you know, for people. And I tell this story all the time. And if anyone's ever heard any other interview with me, I'm apologizing for reading it again, but it's such a defining moment in my life. But I got a fan letter from someone at the 10th year anniversary who said, you know, um, I don't know if you're gay or not, and it doesn't matter. But when I was in eighth grade, I was tortured for being chubby and beat up for being a sissy. And then your movie came out. And in ninth grade, on the first day of my freshman year, the popular senior girl said, you're like Damien, come sit with us. And he was like, thank you for giving me something in media that I could point to and say, that's me. And I got a letter from a girl in uh, Texas who was like, my best friend's gay and he's never been allowed over. And now my mom loves Damien. So he's over for dinner and he sleeps over and everything. And just thank you. Like I said, a place at that table for that guy. And then recently, uh, like Asad Yacob was this really great uh, director who grew up in Dubai. He directed Trixie Mattel's latest video and he directed, he directs a lot of the music videos uh, for, for um, a lot of the queer um, uh, artists that are out there. Jordy's new music video he directed. And he came up to me holding the queer tea that he won at the queer tea awards. And he was like, in tears at the party just telling me he's like you don't realize that because Damien never said I'm gay he made it through censors in Dubai and it was the only gay person I ever saw on in cinema like you're literally the reason that I said I could go to America like and that happened in Asia and Africa and India and all these places where gay gets cut out they're making a big deal about light year about like a same-sex kiss right now that stuff gets cut out or becomes a big deal but Damien was like what are you talking about I'm not gay when they said to get a function or whatever and just because of that he was allowed through and Damien never came out in the script but I ad-libbed one line where uh she goes look I'm partial um she goes "I'm I'm a queen and and he goes as am I and I think as am I, and since it was the end of the movie, was my way of outing Damien. And I think that that resonated with the people who I was trying to make hear it. The censors weren't listening, but the chubby gay teens, they fucking hang on every word. I was looking around for any word from a conversion therapist, from a parent, from a friend, from just somebody, from every television show I ever saw. I watched all the weird stuff. That's why I'm a fan of the weird stuff. I watch USA Up All Night and John Waters and and um, and just anything, Gregor Rocky, like anything I could watch that would have a, an semblance of queerness because I was hungry for just somebody saying it's okay. And Damien said that on such a large global scale that I wasn't even ready for. I mean, I've just been figuring it out this year that like how much social impact that character had. And so to me, to do a part two, three, four, five, I love it. I would do Damien the Animated Series. I don't care. Like whatever, like I, I just, they just don't want to do it for whatever reason, you know, I'm so into it. I mean, I want to do a whole movie with the whole cast. We all play different characters. People would love that. You know, Tina Fey's got that power and she ain't pulling the trigger. So I don't know who else could do it. Um, I think that's like when Ali Sheedy was here and she was like, I would never do another Breakfast Club. I was like, would you do another movie with all the people that were in the Breakfast Club? I think that's such a great idea. 
I mean, they did that anyway. That's what John Hughes did, you know? I mean, I, I don't know. I, I w- it would have been great if if Tina kept writing movies for all of us, like if all of us were in Baby Daddy or whatever. But I can't put that all on her, you know? Um, Do you I've think it would to- ever happen, though? I've been trying to write something now that has all of us in it, just because, to me, that just seems like so much fun. And I know how much joy. I've kind of, like, progressed. So, like, my dream was to be, like, this famous actor that everybody knew. And pretty much, even if you don't know how to pronounce my name, if you go, oh, the guy from Mean Girls, people know me. So I've, I accomplished that so early on. What's the next dream, right? Like, what's really the next goal? Like, yeah, I want an Oscar or something. I love all those awards. And I think it's so cool. Oh, my God. I would be so touched and honored if everybody, if a group of my peers all said that I was the best that year or something. Like, I could see where that would feel really good. But it seems like a really selfish goal to, like, live my whole life based off of at this point. I don't even watch the Oscars. So it's like, I kind of feel like, that's not what I want, even though I would love it. Like I want to just be like a purveyor of joy. When I see the look on, on, on a 15 year old girl's face when the family gives her a cameo of me, like, or when I see like um, the way the Italian mom acts the same way, when I do a Italian mom cameo and they show it to like a, a Nana and she's like freaking out over it. Or like when I do, when I walk out to my colleges and they're screaming and they're like dressed like me and they're holding like fat heads of me and they're like going nuts. Like, it's just like, Oh, these people like love this shit. I'll stay at that meet and greet and meet every single person at those colleges for free. And honestly, I've even like risked COVID doing it at some points of, of, of the past few years because it brings people so much joy. It's like really what we need. And I'm like guaranteed to like bring joy almost. It's like, what a gift God has given me to be able to be someone that's known for that, you know? And um, nostalgia is one of the greatest things in the world for people with trauma. I know it from my own trauma. I know it from people I love's trauma because nostalgia is packaged in a sweet little package that's already sealed and closed. So if you have a good, joyous feeling over Mean Girls, no one could take that away from you. Like no matter how much abuse you've been through or whatever you're going to go through, that package is still a sweet one. So it's like, the way things are triggers, it's like a glimmer for a lot of people. They can like plug into Mean Girls and get a glimmer of happiness. And and they're like, oh, you know, I've had letters that are like, me and my brother do not get along. We do not see eye to eye on everything from politics to um, how, even our own family. But we both love Mean Girls. So thank you for giving me that one thing I can connect with my brother over. Or, you know, just l- things like that. And I think that initially when... I started being an entertainer. It came from this place of look what I could do, like Stuart from Mad TV. But now it's at this place of like, 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 look at what it's done. You know, so it's like I, I look for roles and I look for things that are important that are impactful. And I'd rather do my stand up and walk around and make everybody just giggle about my mom and like not think about anything. I don't talk about politics. I don't even talk about even gay rights. And I'm I'm an activist. I'm constantly fighting for rights of people with HIV AIDS or, or, or LGBTQ homeless youth or just any queer rights in general. Like, and, and I'm active in both Washington and on my social media and in my interviews and stuff. But when it comes to me performing, let's all forget that for a second. Let's just all sit and giggle together about stupid shit. And it brings so much joy to me. And I made more money doing stand-up than I ever have done doing acting. And so, you know, I haven't made a movie in many years. Because and it's not it's not because people haven't wanted me or because I haven't had opportunity. I think it's because like 
the next movie I make has to be impactful. It has to be something that, or something where like, you don't even know it's me. And you're like, who is that? And it's like, I just want something that that's part of the reason I'm enjoying Italian mom. It's because I'm like, literally there's people who are fans of Italian mom that I think still haven't put together that I'm Damien and love me girls, you know, wow. I think, and, and I think that that's part of my act, something and people same thing when I spit in your grave, like people don't even realize it's me. And I think that that's one of the things I really love about acting, because I think one of the things that was a big draw for me as a young man to pursue this was the fact that I wasn't comfortable in my own skin. So I was trying on other people's. And I think that it's gotten to this point where like, I, li- I love being other people and telling other stories and trying to develop something. You know, I've never been the actor that's like, I hate this line. I'm not going to say this. I've always been like, I hate this line. So it's not me saying it. It's this character. And I'll frame my whole character off of the thing that I don't feel comfortable saying. And I think that it's just like a fun way to just be an artist. And I just really, I, I enjoy what I do. I wish I got to do it more, but you know, I'm not I'm just going to do it just because I want to. I'm going to do the things I want to do. And you're writing a script now, but actually for the people. I have several house. things going on right now. Yeah. But one of the ideas that I have like um, on my desk is this idea for all of us to get back together again. Cause I definitely, I don't want to promise it. Cause it's like nowhere near finished, but I'm, I, I think that within a year I could pitch it and you know, um, it'll be fun. You know, we're approaching the 20th anniversary. What a great time to start something like that. Well, you should just start with Tina Fey, I would think. Well, um, uh, yeah. Um, I haven't talked to Tina in a really long time. So I would like to talk to her. She can, you know, <laughs> that'd be nice. I, I agree. I think especially for like 20th anniversary people will, I mean, this movie just, like you said, it brings so much joy to so many people still so many years later. Well, the fact that, you know, like Assad told me that it made him feel like he didn't have to, like that suicide wasn't the only option. Like for some of these people, like, I, I just, I needed that. I needed that so badly. Like, I think about what if, like, my first project starred Drew Barrymore, someone who's like so like gay friendly, and like, what would my life like have been like instead of meeting homophobic uh, things? Or, you know, what would it have been like if, um, if when I did Damn Yankees, I fell in love with a chorus boy? Like that. Or like, who knows? Like something like that could have changed my whole trajectory of life. You know, and. The things that were keeping me from doing those things were me feeling crazy about who I was in my body. And so my career is about normalizing my body for other people so they could have permission to do so for themselves and about finding ways to make myself be seen so other people can feel seen. And it's, you know, it's really cool. I'll take, uh, and I'll say this out loud, I don't even care, but I'll take almost any role in a decent movie that sexualizes me. That's something that's so interesting to me because I think that that that's needed out there. And I think that I've moved the dad bod <laughs> like like meter a little bit in the gay community. I don't even still know in the gay community. Lots of times they've shown someone like me uh, having sex like I did on looking, you know, and I, and I got a fan mail there. This is great. This is hysterical. This guy wrote me and he goes, don't get it twisted. This is a fan letter. He's like, but I saw Mean Girls like 10 years ago and I don't really remember you in it. He's like, and I have no idea what an Eddie Bear is. That was my role on looking. <laughs> he's like, but he's like, this is a fan letter because I was on the dance floor at a party and this guy who's way out of my league walked up to me about three months ago and said, you're my Eddie Bear, come with me. And we've been dating ever since. And I don't know what the fuck you're doing, man, but keep doing it because it's working. And I mean, 
Wow. What else could you ask for? What else could you ask for? And that's really my final question as we wrap up. Like, do you think we're, we've come far, you know, in not just right, like body type, you look at like Pose, Ryan Murphy, like where do you think we are in Hollywood that, I mean, we have out. I mean, look, I'm, people say that I'm a gay icon or that I like, but why am I not working? Do you know, I'm auditioning constantly. Like there's still, there's, I mean, I'm a person who is famous from this really big movie, maybe one of the biggest teen movies of all time. And I'm, I've proven myself and my acting, but I'm still not working. There's still not roles for me. It's still not, it's still not happening in a way that it needs to be happening, you know? And um, when there are roles, the same five guys were all fighting over it, you know? And I'm like, you guys do it. I'll go do my tour. So to me, like I, I'm waiting for, I guess, the generation I've influenced to come of age. And I think we're here right now. It's going to happen. There's going to be a young Quentin Tarantino or like a young Ryan Murphy or somebody who was born into a world where Mean Girls was and knows my gifts and has been influenced by me and people like me to find guys like me attractive and, and put them in leading male roles. You don't have to be anybody. I, I want to see different body types in leading male roles, straight and gay. I want to see everyone start flipping the script, you know? Like, and, 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 and doing things more creatively cast, like the way theater's been doing for centuries. And I just think that we need to catch up with it. Everyone knows it's a movie. I kind of feel the same way. Look, we've come far, but, you know, then you look at, like, the big, you know, blockbuster, like, action films, like, the big blockbuster movies. You're like, where are the characters, really, that are so Yeah, like, um, like, there's no place for me in the Marvel Universe. Like, nowhere. Like, you know, like, there's no, like, I mean, I haven't even had audition for that. There's just nothing that exists that they think, um, I might be right for you know and I, that's what I think is kind of weird I'd like to be working so um, if you ask me if I think Hollywood's changed I'd say not that much I'm still trying to fight for a piece of the pie you know uh, but I think that it's going to come down to me creating my own stuff which is what everyone's told me since I'm 20 but I didn't know how to do yet or 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 thought that I might have it not be that or whatever but the more I see the stuff that other people are creating the more I do want to create my own things because that's there is no one's going to make an Italian mom play and then have an audition and then cast me. The uh, probability of that is forget it. I probably could do something, everything always one hot dog finger moment, like with the probability of someone creating a play like that for me, you yes. know? So it's kind of like, you know, if it was, and, and it actually had to happen that way. Like Jacques had to be like, Hey, let's do this. Cause sometimes I don't even see uh, my own abilities because other people don't see them. Well, you're starting with Italian Mom, which is a great place to start. And I didn't even know Italian Mom did cameo. So let's just throw that out there, too. So <laughs> that's like a whole new thing because I had no idea. Where can everyone find you online? And is there anything else you want to cover that I didn't bring up? I like to give people a chance at the end. Your podcast is great. You can talk about and plug anything you want. Thank you for answering all I, my I, questions. Honestly, I definitely think that it's a great time to check out my podcast, Yash Jesus, at Yash Jesus Pod. Um, on Instagram or yashjesuspod.com because we are on hiatus for the summer, but it's the best of. So out of our hundreds of episodes, like you're going to get like the best of the best if you're listening in on some of the most informing or uh, funny or irreverent shows. I love that. And Italian Mom, August, you want to wear? Yeah, it's going to be August 
uh, Italian Mom Loves You. It's going to be the world premiere at the Seven Angels Theater in Waterbury, Connecticut. Um, there's going to be shows from August 12th to the 21st. Um, it will probably end up in New York, Florida, and LA fairly soon after that, but other markets, not as soon. So if you're anywhere near there, um, I would try to check it out. Um, they're selling fast and it's going to be really fun. And for everyone who hasn't, I mean, your Italian mom is hilarious. For everyone listening yeah, to that. You, could, um, you can follow me on uh, YouTube at uh, my, my, my tube. Um, or you can find me anywhere else online at What's Up Danny. I love it. Well, after this live show, you'll have to come back. I could have talked to you for like five more hours. The more you talk, the more I'm like, there's so much more to say. I could talk about Hollywood and the concept of fame and how it works for like seven hours alone. So I know. I totally appreciate your time too. Yeah, this is really great. And I had a good time. Me too. Definitely keep in touch and you'll definitely come back. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to yet another episode of Behind the Velvet Rope. Because without you listeners, I would just be a crazy person with voices in my head. And if you like what you hear, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe on Apple Podcasts under Behind the Velvet Rope. And when you're done subscribing, feel free to leave a five-star write-up review because the write-up reviews actually count. We read each and every one of them. We post the best ones and the reviews really help our shows keep going. And we really appreciate everything you guys say, especially the positive ones. And if you want to find us online, we're at Behind Velvet Rope on Instagram. We are at David Yontef on Instagram. We're Behind The Velvet Rope on Apple Podcasts. Or head on over to Patreon, because you know what? There are just some things we can't talk about here. So for our bonus episodes, go to Patreon and type in Behind The Velvet Rope. And if you still aren't sick of me, and you want more David, go to Cameo and book me on Cameo. And you can ask me anything there. I'll answer whatever you want. And I have a bargain basement price of $10. Thank you guys. See you soon.